Good afternoon. It's Friday the 2nd of July 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and also joining us via video link is uh, Joe Boyd, and we'll be talking about uh, Kill the Bill and uh, the Police and Crime Bill, which is back in Parliament uh, in, on Monday. So we'll be talking about that in a second. But uh, before we get there, Patrick, uh, what's going on in Israel with respect to vaccines? Well, this is a really fascinating story that has just come out. Uh, we're looking at the Israeli press uh, and we want to give a hat tip to uh, Gilad Atzman uh, here for this story. This is really a story, Mike, about when you break it down, this is international drug trafficking. This this unlicensed uh, experimental uh, mRNA vaccine that seems to be trafficking around the globe. So what's happened here? Well, the Israeli press is now talking about the UK is planning to, or at least talking to Israel about receiving a whole load of vaccine doses uh, for the UK. And these were the same doses that the Palestinian Authority rejected, Mike, just two weeks ago. The PA rejected about 90,000 doses uh, because Israel had said that uh, these are okay, they don't expire till July, August. Then when the Palestinian Authority inspected them, uh, they, had a, they were due to expire this week. So this is the question, are these the same doses coming to the UK uh, that, that are basically expired? Is this what's going on here? So this is a legitimate question uh, which is being asked uh, on this story here by, by Gilad, but actually there's, there's good records on this particular story. Take a look at this. This was just from a couple of days ago, as you can see, uh, June 19th. Uh, what do we see here? The Palestinian Authority had canceled a deal to swap coronavirus vaccine doses with Israel. So in other words, they were planning to get them early from Israel and then return them in September when the PA got their allotment uh, for this vaccine. So the PA said the doses were supposed to expire in July, August, but actually expired at the end of June, according to their ex technical team there. So human rights organizations in the, in the West, the more the left-wing humanitarian organizations were calling on Israel to give the vaccines to the Palestinians right away, but the Palestinians were a lot more cautious about the shipment which they're taking uh, from, from the Israelis, Mike. But uh, they go on here, this is interesting. So earlier in the day, Israel announced that it would transfer up to 1.4 million nearly expired doses of Pfizer's vaccine to the Palestinian territories. Uh, but then just beyond this, in exchange, the Palestinians would send them back again. And so this is from Naftalia Bennett, the new prime minister's mm -hmm. office here. So is there anything to be worried about if you're the Palestinians about this new prime minister? He, uh, when you break it down, is actually a lot more hawkish towards Arabs and Palestinians than Netanyahu, if that's even possible. So you're talking about an extreme ethno-nationalist here uh, is the new PM uh, taking the reins uh, in Israel here. And we just want to point people to, there's a whole lot of statements that you can dig up from Neftalia Bennett's Sterling uh, Hall of Fame of quotes here. This particular one was one of my favorites. I've killed lots of Arabs in my life and there's no problem with that. That's one of the more tame quotes that we've uh, okay. unearthed there. But uh, let's just take a look at the Israeli press here. This is from N12. Uh, and so thanks to Gilad for translating from Hebrew to English here, the Israeli ministry fears the loss of hundreds of thousands of doses uh, has uh, devised a creative solution. Britain may receive 
a million vaccines as early as next week. In return, uh, the UK presumably will deliver to Israel the next shipment it receives from Pfizer in September. Uh, so the Israeli news item also points out that the Israeli Pfizer doses will expire as soon as next Saturday. What is going on here, Mike? So think? they're coming here. Is this because Britain is doing such a sterling job of getting them rolled out that uh, they'll get them out before the uh, actual expiry date? Or is it because we don't mind too much what the expiry date is? I think there's more than meets the eye in this story. Let's go back to Gilad's website and look at this. He's posted uh, here, again, good journalism work here by uh, Gilad Atzman. Look at this chart, Mike. What does this chart basically say? Take a look at the dates along the bottom there. That's January uh, right up to June 29th. And what do am we... I, am I reading this correctly, that Israel hasn't rolled out very many jabs at all since April? Yes. What, what it looks like, Mike, is that they really flatlined in terms of vaccine uptake around the beginning of March, actually. So there has not been a lot going on. So according to uh, the official numbers here, we have uh, the Israelis, Mike, uh, they're saying anyway, uh, that there's 63% of Israelis have had it one, one dose and 50, around 53% have had double doses. So that's actually, the, the numbers are constantly changing. We thought there were much higher numbers than that months ago, but now those, those look like the official numbers. And that's really flatlined since March. So what's going on here? So, and again, uh, the, this is Reuters here reporting this. So, so basically what you seem to be saying is that they haven't been able to ship, shift any doses since about April or so, which has meant they've got, got close to their expiry date. So what they decided to do was ship them into Palestine instead. The Palestinians said, oh, no, we're, we've got no danger of getting these rolled out before the expiry date, so we'll send them to Britain instead. No, no, the, the Palestinians rejected them. And right. Israel said, what do we do with all this stock? Well, let's call up our friends in, in Britain and see if we can offload them in Britain. Is, right. that, is that what's happening? It certainly does look like it. And uh, is this because uh, people in Israel suddenly decided that they didn't want to be vaccinated after all? That were the adverse reactions uh, lifting to a level where it couldn't be ignored? Is that what was going on? There has to be an answer to that question. And that's certainly one of the obvious answers. I will point out that Israel blocked 1,000 doses of the Russian Sputnik V, which it had got um, sent to Gaza from the UAE via the United Arab Emirates. Right. Those were for frontline healthcare workers. Israel blocked those Russian vaccines. But there was also another 40,000, I think, were due to be shipped after that, I, I, I suppose, when they resolved that controversy. So there's a little bit of a vaccine cold war going on as well between the Western vaccines and the Russian and the Chinese vaccines. So again, we're seeing this, these vaccine borders uh, that are seem to be creeping up along geopolitical lines and it's getting very messy mm. as well. But just go back to that graph. I don't know if you can uh, on, on that Gilad's graph there. So, so this, th this really shows, Mike, that according to this, about 40% of Israelis are not vaccinated. And there's no sign that there's gonna be any enthusiasm for more vaccines here. So that, in terms of the Palestinian side, uh, we're talking about 5%, 5% of Palestinians out of the 4.8 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, only 5%, according to these statistics, have been vaccinated. So really low uptake 
in, in Palestine, and much like Australia, by the way, similar numbers there. So this is a great source of frustration to uh, a lot of the public health mavens, uh, those people on the payroll, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, and just big pharma in general. Mm. So they're looking for ways, it seems like, politically, to try to crack some of these untapped markets. Okay, now uh, we have to issue a correction to a story that we did on Wednesday. Let me explain. Uh, BBC very quickly uh, published this article uh, following Wednesday's news. Uh, misleading stat claims more vaccinated people die. Um, and uh, so let's just have a look and see what the BBC is saying here. Some people, including those pushing an anti-vaccine agenda online, have been claiming a large proportion of those dying with the Delta variant of coronavirus had been vaccinated. One conspiracy site even claimed vaccinated people were dying at a higher rate than those that had received the jab, which is untrue. Um, well, unfortunately, uh, Patrick, that was me, and uh, it was incorrect. So I'm just going to clarify exactly how that happened. So uh, we were talking about uh, this document here, the SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern and variants under investigation in England, technical briefing 17. Uh, and we uh, showed uh, this table um, and uh, the table showing all the Delta cases, uh, cases of the Delta variant. These are allegedly based on PCR test uh, samples and going for uh, genomic sequencing and genotyping. Uh, and the, the uh, Public Health England was saying that uh, from the 1st of February 2021 to the 21st of June, there were 92,029 cases altogether. Um, but uh, I made the error, let's say, of calculating the case fatality rate based on the uh, the full uh, on the all case numbers. So when I published, when I said this on Wednesday, I said that vaccinated uh, versus unvaccinated. Basically, the case fatality rate was much higher for vaccinated uh, than unvaccinated, which, of course, on the face of it, it absolutely is. The calculation was correct, but uh, I was wrong to uh, base it on the totals. I should have looked at the at each cohort, the under 50s and the over 50s separately. So we're going to do that now. Uh, so um, I also made the point that uh, uh, when I mean, this is where the key problem arises. If you look at the numbers of people that are unvaccinated that were uh, being labeled as cases that are under 50, it's 52,846 and over 50, it's only 976. Um, what wasn't taken into account here is the number of people that are actually vaccinated at this point. So how many people over 50 are, are still unvaccinated? As a proportion of the total, it's not very many. Um, and, uh, and we see that also with the uh, numbers of people that are uh, just with one dose, but not quite uh, at the point of the vaccine kicking in. So let's have a look at the actual uh, statistics for over 50s. Uh, for vaccinated, the case fatality rate is 0.9%. So basically, you've got a 0.9% chance of dying if you end up with an infection uh, after you've been vaccinated and a 3.8% chance of dying according to those statistics, but we'll come on to that in a second, uh, if you are unvaccinated. But the BBC then went on to say uh, this, uh, they said, and there's another reason you cannot currently just compare the number of COVID deaths among vaccinated and unvaccinated people and come to any conclusions about how effective the jabs are, uh, because most fully vaccinated people are over the age of 50 and therefore more likely to die, while most unvaccinated people are young and healthy. 
And so when we can, the fact is that when we consider that statistic that I've just shown on, on screen of uh, the unvaccinated case fatality rate being higher than the vaccinated case fatality rate, well, this cuts both ways. Um, so we actually don't know um, what people died of because we've got to keep in mind that this is based on PCR tests mm -hmm. and we don't know whether what was actually genomically sequenced was uh, a, an infection or some th something else that was picked up by the PCR test. Or, right? or, or just a, a computer modeled uh, uh, variant um, that was created in a genomic software program right, or something right, like this. Right, yeah. but, uh, right, but there was one interesting thing that I just wanted to highlight from that uh, statistic. If we looked at the case fatality rate for the under 50s, uh, for the vaccinated, that calculates at a 0 0.01 uh, chance of death for if you're under 50, mm. if you're vaccinated. But if you're unvaccinated, there's a 0 0.011 chance of death as well. So actually, when you look at the figures correctly, what it seems to be showing, and anybody wants to correct me on this one as well, but what it seems to be showing is that the vaccine makes no difference to, your, to the survivability of the, of the Delta variant when you're under 50. Right, so what you're showing here on screen absolutely reflects what is the absolute risk reduction uh, in terms of vaccines rather than the relative risk reduction. So what they've been quoting, 95% effective and all of these big giant numbers, which are relative risk reduction. This is what the media, the BBC and everybody else quote. What you have here is closer to the absolute risk reduction. So again, if we go back to the actual BBC uh, news slide uh, previously and you bring up the text, I don't know if you're able to. No, well, well, I can't, but I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. I'm going to move on to the next little bit because the next little quote from this article says, uh, but the number of actual, sorry, but the actual number of people dying would be much lower and 20th as many as if no one was vaccinated according to PHE estimates. The vaccines are already estimated to have saved 27,000 lives in England. Now, we are going to be producing an article on this whole thing uh, later on today. Ian Davis is writing it as we speak. Um, and we're going to be publishing it later on, which is going to go into this in much greater depth. But this issue of estimations, where's that coming from? Well, um, it's actually coming, uh, sorry. So, well, before we come on to where it's coming from, let me just t uh, list the main takeaways here. Uh, this uh, report from uh, Public Health England, SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern and variants under investigation in England is based on cases and PCR tests. That's the first thing to say about it. What was actually genomically sequenced? Was it um, a, an infectious agent or was it some carryover carry from a previous infection? What, what was actually genomically sequenced? But as the BBC says, over 50 is much more likely to die in general. But the question is, where do the estimates come from? It comes from this, the MRC Biostatistics Unit at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and Public Health England as well. The latest modeling suggests that COVID-19 vaccines have prevented 7.2 million infections and 27,000 deaths. Now, this is what uh, Sajid Javid was talking about on, when, on Tuesday when he was giving his briefing to the House, uh, that it's based on the latest computer models. Now, is that a reasonable thing to claim, 27,000 deaths? The fact is they have no actual evidence for that whatsoever. But the other thing that I just want to point out is this is, uh, they're claiming that they've saved 27,000 deaths, but uh, they've avoided 27,000 deaths, 
But actually, we have uh, 27,000 real deaths, uh, which are additional excess deaths going on at the moment. So if we take this period that they're talking about from the beginning of the year until now, uh, if we look at uh, the latest ONS statistics and look at the people that are dying at home, which at home, which the ONS themselves say are not dying from COVID or any connection to COVID. And we look at this as excess mortality. These are extra deaths above the five-year average. If you take from the 1st of January up to, up to date, that comes out at around 25 to 27,000 people. Those are people that are really died because they didn't get the health care that they needed or for whatever reason. So, so this is, uh, my question is, um, therefore, if they're claiming that they've saved 27,000 lives as a result of the vaccination rollout, um, how can they do that when what we're seeing on screen at the moment is 27,000 people that have died in their own homes because they haven't been able to get access to their general practitioner or they have, they've got a, an acute condition that's been going on for a long time and they haven't had uh, medical treatment for it? because the NHS has been reoriented towards the vaccination program, which wasn't necessary in the first place. Uh, and the NHS has been re reoriented towards COVID and therefore waiting lists have extended to the point of uh, destruction for the NHS. That's 27,000 roughly people that actually died. And whereas the government can only provide a model that says that they've saved 27,000 lives through the vaccination program, I think there are a lot of questions to be raised out of this whole thing. The, the original BBC text that you put up, uh, the last paragraph, uh, I don't know if you can show I can, sh I can show that, yeah. Show us that really quickly, the original text. Uh, Was it this one? Uh, the original, uh, yes. Okay, the last paragraph, Mike. If you look at the last paragraph, because most fully vaccinated people are over the age of 50 and therefore are more likely to die, while most unvaccinated people are young and healthy. They've just made the case there not to vaccinate the youth because you're why you're introducing a new risk with an unlicensed experimental vaccine the bbc has even admitted they've undermined their own case mike <laughs> in their own argument they've totally undermined it there they've admitted that uh there, there's a very low risk for young people to even get ill of COVID, much less ever die of it. If you look at the statistics, I mean, the lower you go down in age, according to their numbers, uh, it gets more and more and more obscure. So they, they've made your argument for you there. So introducing mass vaccinations for young people, which is an argument that even people in some government officials and MPs have raised this issue. Why are you introducing another risk, especially if it's unlicensed and it's experimental pharmaceutical product. Which brings us to this Daily Mail article. Gloomy Sage Advisor calls for school restrictions to remain until all children are vaccinated. Who could they be talking about, Mike? Who is the Gloomy Sage Advisor? It's none other than John Edmonds uh, there. He, so he's saying that all the children need to be jabbed in order to ease restrictions. So there's no other alternative, according to uh, John Edmonds, uh, from the London uh, School of uh, Infectious Diseases and Tropical Diseases. But uh, actually, we've got the clip from the BBC. Let's, let's listen to this. Well, uh, I mean, you know, at some point we ha do have to dismantle all of these, uh, all of these measures that we put in place. Um, you know, I think the time, for me, the safest time to do that um, is, is when children have been vaccinated, certainly secondary school age children at least. 
Um, that's the safest uh, way. That's the way that... Is that, we... that what you're advocating? I mean, would you say it is now time to vaccinate I mean, I think, children? I think if, if the vaccine can be... If, if we can show that it's safe... Um... If they can show that it's safe. Why, why, why don't you do the safety bit during the clinical trials over a period of three or four or five or six years? Isn't that what we normally do with uh, regulatory procedures? with pharmaceutical products? Is that the normal protocol? That would be the normal protocol. thing to do, yes. So we've, what, thrown all that out the window, right? Yes. Why? Because... It's expedient. Because, what, there's a pandemic on and uh, people are dropping dead in the street on the sidewalk? Uh, what's going on here? So th this argument is just getting more and more ridiculous. So John Edmonds, uh, he of sage fame, uh, so we just went and did a little search uh, regarding the London School of Tropical uh, Diseases, Infectious Diseases here. And th this is actually the Bill and Melinda Gates website for, for grants. And we found a few, about 145 grants uh, there for the London School of Hygiene and Tropical uh, Medicine there. I think that's where John Edmonds works, right? So uh, in just in the last two years, Mike, you're talking about circa 40 million pounds. Mm. Okay, or dollars, sorry, is this dollars? Yes, yeah, yeah. dollars, yeah. It's dollars. But if you go back uh, 15 years, it's, you know, there's another page here. It's a lot of money. I mean, maybe in total we're, we're in excess of 200 million, possibly. This is kind of imperial college level funding. Yes. From the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So think about the agenda that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were pushing so aggressively at the beginning of the pand pandemic. And then look at the words of John Edmonds throughout the so-called global pandemic. And you'll see that they're very, very much streamlined there. So we're asking, do all those tens of millions of dollars have anything to do with John Edmonds' uh, prescriptions there for various interventions? Does it have anything to do with the amount of money flowing into his institution? I don't know. It's a good question. It's a fair question to ask. Um, but uh, other stuff going on in schools. Uh, we're heading over to the United States for this one. Sure, sure. Well, it, this is a nice photograph here of the children in little Perspex plastic boxes. So the title of this segment, Mike, Children in Plastic Boxes. Who put them there? Well, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. That's the Ministry of Truth for all things pandemic in America. Uh, but let's look at this. What happened? Well, it turns out, Mike, the CDC lied uh, on its recommendations, on its guidance. Never. For uh, prescribing these perspect plastic boxes uh, for schools. I mean, in terms of peak lunacy, this has to be right at the top of the list. Putting these perspect boxes to around children to what? Keep them from transmitting the virus. Um, statistically, we're looking at the numbers, Mike, in terms of uh, risk to children of even getting a cough. From, from the coronavirus, it's around zero, okay? So why roll all this out? This is a multi-billion dollar industry along with the rest of the PPE industry. So everyone who made money on this has already cashed in. Let's just take a look at this. In mid-March 2021, the CDC released new guidelines which removed the recommendations for barriers between school desks. Uh, Greta Massetti leads the CDC's Community Intervention Task Force, I love the sound of that title, and said about the plastic shields, we don't have a lot of evidence of their effectiveness in preventing transmission. So, you know, 
they, they do the mask mandates for the kids. They're putting them in plastic boxes. And now there's a load of people, including the teachers unions in some countries, uh, clamoring to have the children jabbed in order for school to be safe. So I think the problem is not with the kids. I think the problem is with the adults. Where are the adults in the room with this conversation on schools and children? Because I have not seen any. We have not seen any. But Joe Biden made a visit to one of the local schools here uh, recently. I think we've got that clip here. Joe's going to inspect these, these barriers, and he's very impressed, by the way. Let's look at this. Well, I tell you what, you guys are impressive. Very impressive. This is ninth grade, right? Oh, no. It seemed like ninth grade is so smart. Tell me, what do you do? I mean, what do you focus on in terms of, is it mostly projects to get them associated with what they're doing? This one, that's okay. So the biggest hazard in that classroom was clearly well I would say on multiple levels the biggest hazard in that classroom was Joe it's Joe Biden we're not yes. we're not just talking about knocking over perspex boxes uh, either Mike so again the whole thing is based on science fiction like so many other mitigation measures and creative sort of solutions that have been uh, floated over the last 15 months but look at this little bit of pushback here uh, Mike this is uh, the Telegraph recently there's the, Laura Donnelly here calling for it. and and the madness in terms of isolating children mm. uh, the government's warned so Telegraph's launching this campaign to put ch children first, et cetera. We like the sound of this. The general uh, you know, uh, intent here, I think, is very good. So what's happened here, Mike, with the schools? I mean, you, you've got kids being thrown into quarantine because some teacher either tested PCR positive or another student in the cohort tested PCR positive? Well, as we reported on Wednesday, and actually it's now in the mainstream press today, children all over the country are faking the positive test by uh, using fruit juice with the lateral flow test, which creates a positive result. And they're getting their entire classes uh, uh, sent home. I mean... Or test, well, testing their pets. Oh, we'll get on we'll to get that. We'll get on to that, yes. Yes. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. And also do share our material on the various uh, platforms. Now, uh, I received an email uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, and it said this. Uh, Great to see you at the weekend. That was the, the uh, march at the weekend. I'm increasingly concerned about, the con about controlled opposition. We know the Kill the Bill and Extinction Rebellion are controlled opposition, but I'm getting more and more sponsored ads on Facebook from Liberty and Amnesty International. The context of these ads focus on the police and crime bill, having another reading on the 5th of July, that's on Monday. Uh, these are huge multinational organizations who do a lot of great work. However, the obsession with the right to protest, which Kill the Bill focuses on, makes me very nervous of their actual objective. We have seen Extinction Rebellion and Kill the Bill trying to infiltrate our marches, as you've pointed out on your news reports, uh, and also have seen them myself joining the marches. I would love to hear your opinions on these types of organizations and where they fit into the picture. 
Now, uh, no sooner had I received that email yesterday than I got a phone call from Joe Boyd. And so I'm going to say, uh, welcome to the program, Joe. Afternoon, Mike. Afternoon, Patrick. Um, so, Joe, um, we've mentioned you on the program before. We've done a, a, a pre-recorded interview that we've had on the program before um, because you are particularly interested in this uh, police and crime bill uh, at the moment and the implications for protest. Uh, and you've uh, also, uh, as it happens, written a book about um, these uh, types of groups like Extinction Rebellion and some of these uh, larger groups. So I thought you were a perfect person to have on for a few minutes to discuss this. So before we uh, talk about uh, controlled opposition and the types of groups that are uh, implementing that, um, just uh, bring us up to date with the Police and Crime Bill. It's getting its third reading on Monday. Is that correct? That's, that's right, yeah. So this is the final stage before it goes to the House of Lords. Uh, so what I would say about the bill, the bill is protecting the corporate state. That's, that's, at its core, that's what it, that's what it is, really. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like the, the main part of the bill for me that I, I focus on is this distinction between assemblies and demonstrations because the demonstrations of the controlled opposition because everything's agreed with the police beforehand, where they're going to march to, what time they're going to march, when they're going to march, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas with grassroots protest, it could be anything anywhere around the country, is it's the it's nation state protest in a sense, because it's issues that involves local democracy. And what what we found during the anti-fracker movement with, with, with the quadrilla protest was there was controlled opposition, which is the which for me is the corporate state. And they speak to the police, have negotiations with the police, how they're going to protest, they're not going to disrupt, etc. etc. But on the same hand, like outcasting grassroots campaigners who don't want to protest in that way, they want to protest as their alienable right, uh, however that may be. But these people would also, at the same time, like you know, putting discourse out there saying Amman suits were getting locked, uh, locked, etc. And that was to turn the local community against the grassroots campaigners. Uh, and so, what you have is is like all these NGOs, uh, trade unions, etc. On the left. And they're all working within the corporate state. And how it works is it's uh, it's cooperation and consensus. So you have a you have a hard power, which is the corporations, and then you have a soft power, which is civil society organisations like Liberty, Amnesty International, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And over the years, throughout this this neoliberal system, we've had this corporate system. Everything has become about we've got to sit around the table and we discuss. But the hard the hard power is always going to win in them discussions. And so what you so what you have now is is like organizations like Extinction Rebellion, for instance. Now they're shouting, they're shouting for a for a climate emergency, uh, all about mitigation. We're all gonna die in 10 years. We're all gonna die in 10 years. But they want to reduce emissions by 2035 and 2050. Now, that's not that's not an emergency. That's adaption. If we're going to die in 10 years, but the 
this, this corporate way, the business way, is about it, it's about bringing these organisations together and then dictating what what we're able to do. And so that's why they're trying to shut down the protest. They tried to do it through the civil courts, but within the civil courts, when I was successful at the court of appeal, that stopped that route. And if you look at the court system over the last ten years, you've got these fantastic like state-of-the-art civil civil courts and then you've got magistrates in these lower courts that are almost getting run down because the system seems to be transferred into this corporate way where nothing nothing is visual everything is done behind the scenes so you get your you know you get your tickets etc through the post and this is what's happened any so anyone who wants to anyone who tries to oppose this corporate state They've tried to do it through the civil courts, and because they failed, now they've got Extinction Rebellion to do the work for them. The other, the other thing that we've noticed lately, Mike, is this, like, free the press. You know, they fly the banner to free the press, but they get mainstream coverage every day. They get more coverage than any, any, other, any other movement. That's, that's, you know, apart from what we're getting told about vaccines, et cetera, in the media. Everything else seems to evolve. And so, in a sense, it's it's this almost preparing us in a way where there's no opposition and the corporates take over. And so, MPs who are going to be voting on this on Monday, they need to they need to ask themselves on the especially on the back benches because the, the front benches is just corporations. So, the back benches need to be saying to themselves, "Hang on." These corporates are getting bigger than the nation state. And actually, what will happen eventually is even their wealth is not, not secure because corporates, corporate wealth just wants more corporate wealth and more corporate wealth. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so. It's yeah, best. So, sorry, Joe. So, so uh, on Monday, they're going, to have, they're going to have the third hearing of the bill. Uh, and if that's voted through, it's going to go to the House of Lords. I haven't heard yet whether the House of Lords has any ideas for amendments for it, but even so, the, the, the point is that, that this is really the last opportunity for people to get involved, to get engaged with their MPs and make it, make it clear to them, their MPs how they feel about this and, and try to get the thing stopped. Yeah, the, that's, I mean, I've seen some like, stuff on social media where some of the Labour Party MPs, backbenchers are saying, you know, support these amendments and support them amendments. But I'm not seeing anyone saying, we're not, we're not supporting this joining up of everyone within agreed protest, managed protest, because once it becomes managed protest, in connection with the Covert Human Intelligence Services Act, then the establishment or the corporate state can just lead every movement and legally do that. So, so we, while we have grassroots protest, we haven't got leaders. But as soon as we have all demonstrations managed, then the corporate state just automatically controls all the protests and only the protest that the corporate state wants on the TV or wants to promote will be there. That'll be it. Yes. Uh, Joe, uh, one question. Joe, uh, one of the big concerns, a lot of people were looking at this legislation early on, were saying that it gives the state uh, power to fine or to punish uh, anybody that falls out of that controlled uh, demonstration uh, uh, framework that you just uh, described there. So in a way, that by using uh, power of the state in terms of fines and enforcement, they can really sort of eliminate 
any sort of organic uh, assembly and using those mechanisms uh, in order to sort of intimidate people, if you will, uh, from you know being somehow caught through this arbitrary bit of legislation that deemed to be out of line, basically. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on that part? Well, yeah, because when, when, when obviously I challenged uh, INEOS at the High Court and then the Royal Courts of Justice, there was not one NGO or one trade, trade unions or anything who put their head above the parapet. None of them. The only, the only, the only organisation that did was Friends of the Earth right at the end. But that was when, like three weeks before the appeal hearing. So all these organisations were just silent and they were also silent before this bill came to its second reading until the Labour Party abstained on the vote. So that shows me, from, especially from the first time when it was such a big issue then, I mean, the top human rights lawyers in this country, I had Julian Assange's uh, lawyer, I had the top human rights lawyer in this country, I had the top international and public law lawyer, and all them were saying they'd never seen anything like, like this like uh, injunction that was getting put in place because it was, because it was preemptive. But none of these other organisations came to the fore, came to the fore at all. So that tells me that they're already controlled. And that and when you were talking about uh, amnesty and liberty and stuff like liberty, they're controlled opposition because they can't speak until they're given the nod to speak because they they are only a soft power and they're just working like for scraps in a sense. So we've lost this power as as a, we need to have this power as a country and that and that and that starts at grassroots level. So as soon as you've become a managed protest, that's it. You've got you've got no power left. And, and I might add on Amnesty, you know, Amnesty International, those types of mainstream human rights organizations, rights organizations, they usually sit on the in the background, Mike, whenever there's a major issue. And they're only when it's, as Joe rightly said, when they're called uh, to speak, then they move to the front. And normally it's because there is such an upswell of grassroots dissent that uh, the organizations would lose total credibility if they don't even comment on it. That's what happened with Julian Assange. And we can say that with so many different other issues as well. So that's, uh, and, and Amnesty does have pedigree uh, in terms of colluding with uh, the intelligence services. I mean, that's just part of, of history. Yes. So, I mean, that's something else that we can discuss uh, in a minute. Right. Now, uh, Joe, uh, when I've talked about you on the program before, we've mentioned your book, and I'm going to mention it again now and ask you to, to remind people what it's called and where they can get it, because the question about controlled opposition you go into in this book, that's basically what it's about. Um, and... Uh, it's it's your life story as a, as an activist, really, and and the the cases that you brought against Ineos and other other things that happened during the anti fracking protest. What you saw, what you experienced, and how this uh, controlled opposition mechanism works. And so, I really encourage people to read read your book. How do they? What's it called, and how do they get it? Yeah, so it's called the Road to Kill the Bill, and they can get it on Amazon, uh, or they can get it at my publishers, which is you, Caxton, or it's on Waterstones as well. There's a bit of a delay with Waterstones, but it's on them free and it's on an independent bookshop in Liverpool. So, yeah, uh, as you said, within it, it talks about, although it looks like it's my story, it is my story, but the majority of the book is what is what I observe and what I uncover and evidence 
evidence that I see in the high courts. You know, no one, no one could detail it as as well as me because by the time we got to the end, as you know, with the with our late friend in our crane, like there was only a few of us left because everyone else had been gaslighted by 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 the corporate state in a sense. So they all just got into a small corner. So. It's not until you're in these high courts or these royal courts, et cetera, that you really see the evidence of what's going on behind the scenes. And I I uncovered that there was strategic security services uh, based in Hereford, the home of the SAS. And actually, they were used to working in the Iraqi and Kuwait oil fields. You had the National Police Chiefs Council involved. You had the Counterterrorism Police National Operations Centre involved. And these, these organisations were, well, especially... Uh, the CTPNOC, they were advising Ineos that they had enough evidence for uh, an injunction. But there's all there's all sorts in there because it's from some the meetings took place every time we seem to railroad like and save grassroots protest. Strategic security services behind the scenes were working on another plan straight away, and then we'd have to stop that and. We must have stopped strategic plans maybe three, four, five times throughout, 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 throughout it. And it's all in the book, and so it's compelling. I mean, it's what I learned in it's what I learned and observed in in the best part of six years. And people can read it within two days. And I'm, I'm sure anyone who reads it, who's uh, who's a crit critically analyzes stuff, they will be able to put a lot of things together from different organized uh, movements that they're in and and see how this controlled opposition actually works. Okay, Joe Boyd, thank you very much for joining us today once again. And uh, well, we'll see what happens on Monday, but it, I would just urge as many people as possible, you might want to speak to your MP in the meantime. Um, but uh, Joe was saying there, Patrick, uh, you know, the, the, the other piece of legislation which uh, escapes me at the moment, which gives the UK government and many government agencies, not just the police and the military, the opportunity to get involved in activism and break the law in the process in order to pursue uh, government and or corporate agenda. Um, but this idea of informants uh, within organizations that isn't just um, limited to this side of the Atlantic. No, no, no. It's it's uh, in, in the United States. This is a, a tried and true uh, tradition, Mike, uh, right back to J. Edgar Hoover. And, and a lot of people would comment that the FBI as as an agency uh, has been actively infiltrating every single possible known activist group since almost the beginning of its existence. Mm. That's on the right, on the left, uh, civil rights, uh, black civil rights organizations, everybody uh, was penetrated by the FBI, even the green movement and probably the animal rights mm. uh, as well. Even the tree huggers are infiltrated. Uh, by federal agencies here. We've talked about this over the years a lot, and it's being talked about more because of what happened in January 6th in the United States. They're calling it an insurrection, and it was, this is a big controversy. Well, what, what's coming out now is exactly what we spoke about for the last few months, and now it's kind of being admitted here. This is up on uh, the revolver. This is from June 30th here. Federal protection of Oath Keepers, Kingpin, Stuart Rhodes, breaks the entire Capitol, quote, insurrection lie wide open here. Revolver News generated tremendous discussion and controversy uh, with its previous piece exploring the possibility uh, of the unindicted individuals uh, referred to in the January 6th charging documents may be undercover agents or informants uh, here 
And this is the uh, previous article uh, that uh, they're referring to. Uh, this is from June 14th, uh, 2021. Unindicted co-conspirators in the 6th of January cases raise disturbing questions of federal foreknowledge. So were the feds involved in the planning of this, quote, insurrection, or at least the key people at the top mm -hmm. who were leading the crowd? Uh, all the evidence points in that direction, unfortunately, uh, on this mic. Uh, so check this out here. Back to uh, Revolver. So the question is, is it possible that Oath Keepers, this is the main sort of biggest, quote, militia organization in the United States. Uh, is it possible that Oath Keepers, the most prominent anti-government group in the United States, well, at least in terms of membership size, you could say, has been run, in effect, by the United States government itself. And nobody has mentioned it until now. Well, we've all mentioned this, along with many other things, uh, in the past here. So in other words, it says, January 6th was not the result of an intelligence failure, as FBI Director Christopher Wray claimed uh, the US, in the U.S. Senate and the media tell us. Uh, rather, January 6th was the result of an intelligence setup, is the question. Uh, so, fair, fair question. All the evidence seems to point in that direction. And I might add, the leader of the Proud Boys, this was one of the, uh, the mainstream media's go-to organizations yeah. to demonize uh, the uh, pro-Trump uh, lobby and the pro-Trump movement. Um, and en Enrico Torino, I think his name was, he came, was outed as, a, as an FBI informant. That's the head of the Proud Boys. So now we have the other sister organization, Oath Keepers, and you have the head of that organization being implicated, perhaps, uh, certainly we'll find out in court, uh, maybe or maybe not, but as an FBI informant. So all of these high-profile, outrageous groups, and normally the ones who are being the most outrageous, either in the media or in, in their activism, uh, doing things that most people couldn't get away with, Mike, mm -hmm. and seeming to be able to walk nonchalantly through the whole thing, often these are federal or government uh, agents or informants, or they're being handled by uh, someone uh, working for one of these agencies. So it, there's a long tradition of this. So there's no reason to think that it stopped in 2019. You know, it just continues. Okay, right. Let's come back to uh, COVID-related matters now. And uh, well, one of the points that you've made over the last uh, few weeks, Patrick, is that we seem to be seeing the same playbook as from last year being played out again in 2021. So the same types of narratives that uh, we saw in 2021 are appearing in 2020. Uh, in 2020, sorry, are appearing in 2021. And uh, well, one of the narratives from 2020. This is from the 23rd of April 2020. We covered this. Uh, cats Lives Matter. Uh, this was uh, something that uh, the media was really pushing very hard back in April and May uh, last year, uh, that we could, our cats could be killing us. Can, can everyone in the chat box give us a big, oh, he's so yeah. cute, isn't he? Look at him. Yes. But they're coming for him. Uh, absolutely, they're coming for him. And uh, so this was the uh, Telegraph headline as just one particular example uh, from last year. Owners warned against cuddling their cats after kitten dies from COVID. And, uh, and the point that we made last year was, was yes, that's because the streets are littered with the, littered with the bodies of dead cats. Uh, and they have been littered with the bodies of dead cats ever since, haven't they? 
You're being facetious there, right? Of course. Just, just to be clear, that's satire. Yes, but uh, the point here is, Patrick, that this narrative has come back with a vengeance. No, they're recycling. So they're rebooting what we're calling Petgate, I guess, just for kicks, really. But uh, ch check, check out the BBC uh, here. And so there's uh, Suti. By the way, they use the same cat image on almost all of these stories. So look at Suti there. What's going on? What are they doing to this poor cat? Are they getting ready to vaccinate him? We don't know. Pets can catch COVID from owners, study suggests. I love the BBC, Mike, because their headlines, they're the only news organization that say study suggests. Most people wouldn't be that brazen, but the BBC is a special breed of media outlet here. Oh, there we go. Most infected pets tend to be asymptomatic or display mild symptoms of uh, COVID. Uh, what risk is an asymptomatic uh, person or animal to anybody else? Well, it, it depends who you talk to, Mike, which, which uh, expert, public health expert you uh, believe on this, but asymptomatic means no symptoms. So in order to have a disease, you need symptoms, right? Right, so asymptomatic generally means a very low viral load and- Or no disease. Uh, indeed. No disease, so no threat. Anyway, they're trying to demonize Suti, okay? so. Let's just take a look. Where else are they going on this? Ah, this is what happened, Mike. Swabs were taken in this study from 310 pets in 196 households where a human infection had been detected by PCR. So logic suggests that six cats and seven dogs returned with a positive PCR test, while 54 animals tested positive for virus antibodies there. So they found a few PCR tests out of 310, what's the percentage of that? Do the math at home, not very high. No. If you think about the false positive rate of a PCR test in a low prevalence demographic, then there's gonna be a very high false positive rate. Could be as high as 80 or 90. So really, we're looking at zero cases potentially here if, if, if you follow actual science uh, regarding the PCR test, which is widely abused. And how many cycle counts did they use? We don't know, not for sure. And more on Suti here. And uh, so, you know, these were taken and swabs were detected. Six cats, seven dogs returned a PCR test. Okay. So this is the person who did the study, Mike. This is Dr. Els uh, Broens from Utrecht University uh, in Holland. This is what she said. She's heading this study. Uh, if you have COVID, you should avoid contact with your cat or dog, just as you would do uh, with other people. Uh, so they said, they're saying here, I think this is uh, Dr. Els, hopefully. Uh, maybe they got the gender wrong in the BBC quote, I'm not sure. But the main concern is not the animal's health, but the potential risk that pets could act as a reservoir uh, of virus and then reintroduce it into the human uh, population there. Uh, so back to this, so the fine print, the authors say the study said no evidence of pet-to-owner transmission had been recorded to date. Very important there. So after all of that, there's actually no evidence of pet-to-owner transmission, but uh, it would be difficult to detect while the virus is still spreading easily between humans. I mean, this is just make it up as you go along. Most infected pets tend to be asymptomatic or display mild COVID symptoms here. So the researchers say the most likely route of viral transmission, most likely, uh, is from human to animal rather than the other uh, way around. So, you know, this is the big question. So now 
now you pose a threat to everyone ran out and got pets during lockdown, right? Yes. Record-breaking sales on puppies, dogs, uh, French, French terriers, the lot, okay? And now they're, they're now threatening you, saying, ah, you're putting your pet at risk of COVID. And there's an outside chance. We haven't found evidence yet. But the pets could also act as a reservoir that could maybe infect the human population. I mean, this BBC is all over the place. But they've been banging this drum for 15 months and they've yet to find any evidence of, of cat to human transmission. Yeah, they, yes. they, there, there is no evidence. So, and again, this is all predicated on the PCR test uh, and also on the asymptomatic spread. This is just my last year in July. Pet, pet cat found to have virus in the UK, another one. Uh, can my dog or cat catch coronavirus April 2020? I mean, it's just endless. Uh, with the BBC. So the, the PCR test, that's the one thing. And then it's the myth of the asymptomatic spreader uh, here. And so we published this article uh, at 21st Century Wire back in May. The myth of the asymptomatic spreader dealt another blow this week. It's constantly being dealt blows, yeah. this myth. So this is all predicated on two things, which is the PCR test and the asymptomatic spread myth. And it is a myth. Let's take a look, just a quick review again of the peer-reviewed scientific literature on this. Paper number one, a respiratory magazine, a study of infectivity of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 carriers. Again, this comes up uh, a goose egg uh, in terms of asymptomatic spreading, not a big factor. Paper number two here, this is uh, JAMA Network, Journal of uh, American Medicine, household transmission of SARS-CoV-2, systematic review, meta-analysis, pretty much uh, proves that uh, there's really not an asymptomatic spreading issue. As Dr. Fauci said, they generally don't drive epidemics. Uh, we showed that on a previous uh, program here. And this, of course, is the most important one. Let's get back to the source here. Wuhan, China. This is one of the biggest studies ever conducted on this. And guess what? No asymptomatic spreading. So despite the peer-reviewed literature saying all this, Mike, people are still running with the myth and building all of their mitigation policies, their masks, their social distancing, their school closures, their mandatory vaccinations, all of these things are built on the myth, the fake pseudoscience that's being pushed by public health experts that somehow there's asymptomatic spreading and this is what we need to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason for all of this, the whole pandemic program is based on the myth of the asymptomatic spread, validated by the fraudulent use of the PCR test, which should never have ever been used as a diagnostic test, but because they waved through an a, absolutely bogus paper by Christian Drosten uh, in Germany at the beginning of the pandemic, that rubber-stamped the use of the PCR test as a pseudo-diagnostic test. And the rest, I'm afraid, is history. Indeed. Okay, well, uh, Freedom Day, is it going to happen? Second Freedom Day, is it going to happen? The first one didn't happen. Is the next one going to happen? Well, apparently this irreversible Freedom Day is already in the process of being reversed. It's good stuff. So extra precautions may need to be in place against COVID-19 uh, after existing, uh, sorry, after easing of the final restrictions later in the month. So they're going to ease the restrictions, but they're not going to, it's not going to be irreversible and it's not going to be uh, a total relaxation. Um, so what was what was Boris saying? Uh, he said, I think uh, I've said it before, 
Uh, will be wanting to go back to the, to a world that is as close to the status quo, anti-COVID as possible, uh, try to get back to life as close as it was before COVID. But there may be some things we have to do, extra precautions that have to, we have to take, uh, but I'll be setting them out in the next couple of days. So people are expecting them. There's Boris in the tracksuit, Mike. It kind of reminds me of Harry Enfield uh, a little bit. Yes. Har- Harry, if you're listening, please, can you do a skit on, can we do a Boris skit? I would have please? thought so. I would have thought so. Now, uh, good news, Patrick. The surveillance state is being uh, implemented right in front of our eyes. Uh, Here is uh, Mission Room. Uh, And this company is all about uh, 360-degree solutions uh, for your business. Now, anybody that has been following the Common Purpose story for uh, many years uh, will know that 360 is uh, important to that kind of narrative. But uh, there are two new winners uh, in the uh, latest round of the first-of-a-kind competition, which is all about government funding new tech. And in this case, they're looking at railways. They're a bit disturbed about uh, the way that the railways and the trains are being used at the moment uh, because they want to encourage people back onto the network in a post-COVID-19 world, but only in the right way, Patrick. Uh, And so uh, Mission Room here has been given money uh, to create a virtual reality immersive journey planning app for trains and stations. Um, And this is building an innovative passenger orientation guide to help passengers navigate stations and trains. It will help reduce passenger anxiety and it will explain the specific bits of the station and train that relate directly to an individual's journey. It will take the complexity out of a trip and explain it uh, using simple but powerful immersive images. And Patrick, I've just really got to wonder, how the hell did anybody take a train before they had the likes of this? How did anybody manage to get through a train station to the bright platform and onto the train and onto their allocated seat uh, bef- without this app? How did they do that? I know. The, think about the anxiety, Mike, of, of getting into the train station. Overcome with anxiety. Look, if you want to talk about anxiety, how about all the signage at 24-7 immersed in propaganda? Literally, you're going up the escalators now, and in between the escalators, there's uh, wash your hands, sanitize your hands, and an a, a, a avatar with a mask. Everywhere you look down, keep your distance, social distance. It's just plastered everywhere. Talk about anxiety. And the mask mandate as well on top of that. So I think the obvious problem is not actually being addressed. Oh, indeed. But uh, don't worry because the government's funding an app to sort that out. And another uh, funding is going to Hitachi Europe. Uh, And this is all about optimizing passenger flows through train stations. Um, By monitoring people flow, congestion points, and behavior, stations may be uh, optimized to the benefit of railway operators as well as passengers. And staff can quickly get an overview of the situation and promptly deploy countermeasures, uh, making passengers feel more comfortable as they're not left waiting in congested spaces and uh, reducing stress on staff. And so uh, Hitachi said that their proposed solution proposes to leverage existing CCTV infrastructure to calculate and propose an optimal configuration of station facilities, such as gates, escalators, and passageways to avoid unnecessary passenger congestion. So again, I'm not entirely clear exactly how stations operated uh, in the pre-COVID days because, you know, it it clearly, it was beyond the, the, the wit of man to, to minimize uh, congestion in stations before. 
uh, they had this type of, of new facility. They're talking about optimizing flow, Mike. They can't even optimize the flow of the average toilet at a station. I mean, if they could just sort the toilets out, uh, make sure they're working, they're clean. Well, that would reduce anxiety for sure. Bring them into the 21st century. Uh, that would be huge in terms of reducing anxiety. I mean, we're not complicated. Humans are pretty simple, you know, give us a working loose, yes. place to get a coffee, benches that don't have security and safety tape over them. Uh, well, now one of the other projects that I haven't mentioned today, but one of the other projects uh, implements uh, new in, uh, internals for carriages so that they can change the, uh, the, seating. the seating arrangements so that you can make for sure- For COVID. For COVID to make sure that you can uh, have proper social distancing, uh, that there's no possibility of congestion inside the carriages and so on. It's it's really amazing. These are really important. That's fantastic. Uh, it is fantastic, yes. That's great. But uh, look, if anybody was any doubt uh, about the, uh, the issue of vaccine passports and, you know, if, if your life is restricted because you haven't had a vaccine um, and uh, you can't get a vaccine passport or you can't get a vaccine passport that says that you're, you're allowed to travel, um, we've got to leave it to the uh, to Chatham House um, to tell us uh, how we should feel about that. So have a listen to this. It gives assurance to the traveler that they are likely to be safe. And it gives assurance to the receiving country that this person is unlikely to be a burden on their health system and unlikely to bring the infection. There is an issue of equity. And that is that people who have been vaccinated may appear to be more privileged than those who have not been vaccinated. In the UK, where our vaccine program has been astonishingly effective, there really is no issue of equity because vaccine is available for everybody. If you choose not to be vaccinated, then you are electing to put yourself in a different position to those who have accepted to be vaccinated. So that's the view of uh... Professor David Salisbury from Chatham House. So apartheid, essentially. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, just to, so do you understand how qualified uh, this gent is? Um, before joining Chatham, this is his CV from the Chatham House website. Before joining Chatham House, David Salisbury was director of immunisation at the Department of Health until the end of 2013. He was responsible for the national immunisation program uh, and led the introduction of many new vaccines. Uh, he is the chair of the Global Cert Certification Commission, chair of the European Certification Commission, member of the uh, Eastern, Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean Commission and a member of the Southeast Asian Commission. Uh, and uh, he previously chaired the World Health Organization's Strategy Advisory Group uh, of Experts on Immunization, uh, the World Health Organization Committee that sets the global immunization policy. He also served as a co-chair of the Pandemic Influenza Group of the G7, uh, global Health Security Initiative, and he continues to lecture and advise on vaccines and vaccination, as well as undertaking ongoing work in polio, malaria, and the development of new vaccines. So he seems to be eminently qualified, does he not, to, to make such a statement? But what do you think his uh, training is in? I'm thinking uh, vaccinology, right? Uh, pediatrics. Oh, okay. He's a pediatrician. So I'm not enti entirely clear how he ended up uh, working 
and with such eminent uh, positions with vaccination, but uh, he's a pedi pediatrician. So. Well, you know, they say a lot of uh, pediatricians, a lot of MDs, are they become uh, a glorified sales and re marketing reps for the pharmaceutical industry. And this is a big complaint we hear time and time again yes. from so many different doctors. So what are all these experts on all these committees, Mike, but glorified sales and marketing reps for the f transnational pharmaceutical cartel uh, pushing drugs uh, around uh, the world. So this is a big problem. So, you know, you don't have to be like Patrick Valance and own 600,000 or how many hundreds of thousands of shares in GlaxoSmithKline uh, to to be a, a stakeholder in Big Pharma. There's other people who are stakeholders too. Uh, as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, a little bit of defense news for you. Well, the, the Joint Expeditionary Force, of course, this is... Uh, uh, 10 nations, European nations, including the UK, that share a commitment to democracy. So we should feel good about that. Um, the ministers uh, from the various nations involved in the Joint Expeditionary Force met in Helsinki yesterday, and they set out the uh, roadmap for which the, uh, they will evolve to tackle shared threats. So this is more defense union, more defense integration. Um, so this is a multinational force made up of 10 like-minded Northern European nations, the UK, which is the framework nation, uh, but also Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden. Um, and uh, so they have a shared commitment to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, and that should make everybody feel excellent, as well as a long history of operating together. Uh, and they're able to operate wherever in the world any two of its members choose to deploy together. So this is fantastic stuff, but they are uh, very concerned about the uh, the possibility of more competition with, who do you think, Russia, who else? Or China. Yeah. But particularly Russia, because this, this is all about North, Northern Europe and so on. So, so that's what they're focused on. They are putting more pressure on Russia. I don't know about you, Mike, but nothing says democracy like uh, soldiers in ghillie suits and heavy equipment uh, charging up the beach. That yeah. is really... That's democracy. That's what democracy looks like. Absolutely. But it gets better because we've got more defense union going on. And remember, the left-hand pillar of European defense union uh, was bilateral agreement. So the UK has decided that it's going to create a brand new bilateral agreement on defense and security, a joint declaration, no less, uh, with Germany. Uh, so there's Heiko Maas on the right-hand side, Dominic Raab on the left. Uh, so they've signed up to this. Um, and what are they talking about? Uh, they're talking about a whole host of things, transatlantic relationships. So it's all going to be about uh, Euro-Atlantic Euro perspective. Uh, Russia, they're going to talk about, they're talking, this is all about uh, potential for conflict with Russia and dealing with that. Also China and the Indo-Pacific, Ukraine, Africa, they're very interested in North Africa, of course. Uh, they're, joint, they're going to jointly promote a more peaceful, secure and safer world. Uh, respect for democracy and the rule of law, global education and human rights, including gender equality, media freedom, freedom of religion and belief. And they're going to address the human rights dimensions, both of climate change and the use of in artificial intelligence. So all, all the right buzzwords. All the right buzzwords are there. Back up on that tweet, Mike. Which one is Heiko and which one is Dominic? You didn't uh, specify. I can't tell the difference. No, and in fact, it's very hard to tell the difference because they look very similar and they've got the same... Uh, more or less the same flags behind them. So and they're wearing the same suit. I can't tell which one's Heiko and which one's Dominic. If anybody can help us out, I think we need uh, we need some help with that. Yes. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, has been in the news over the last uh, few days. We covered it on Wednesday with respect to the issues over uh, HMS Defender. Well, he was uh, 
giving a briefing uh, yesterday. Uh, this is a nationally broadcast a direct line with Vladimir Putin. It's his annual question and answer session uh, that was happening yesterday. And uh, let's have a look at what he said uh, with respect to the HMS Defender issue. Uh, you said that he was to, to, to the questioner, uh, you said that this puts the world on the brink of a global war. Uh, of course not. He said, even if we had sunk that ship, uh, he went on to say, uh, even if we had sunk that ship, um, uh, it's nevertheless difficult to imagine that the world uh, would have uh, been put on the brink of a third world war because those who did this uh, know we would not win a war or we could not win a war like that. That's very important. Uh, the second thing he said is the political component. Recently, a few days ago, a meeting was held in Geneva. Of course, that was the meeting with Joe Biden. The question, and so the question that comes out of this, why was there such a provocation? Um, and uh, this was really his, his main concern. He went on to say, I'm not concerned about this or uh, that somebody does not respect the choice of the people in Crimea to join Russia. So he was really uh, highlighting the fact that, that Britain the United States refused to accept the fact that people in Crimea want to, uh, wanted to join Russia. He said he has a different concern. Uh, look, now they raised a, climber, a, a clamor over the fact that we were conducting exercises on our own territory near the Ukrainian border and instructed the defense ministry to quietly end the drills and withdraw the troops. Uh, if this is such a great concern for them, we did so. But instead of responding positively and saying, okay, we understand react your reaction, to our indignation, what did they do? Uh, they approached our borders. So I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I mean, I appreciate that that sometimes uh, uh, there's criticism of of our position on this of being too pro-Russian, but it just seems to me, Patrick, that that there there's provocation after provocation coming from our side of the defence uh, argument, um, and uh, and at the same time we're shouting that uh, that Putin is the the great provocateur. No, I think the problem is is we're marinated in our own propaganda, and that includes our governor, ministers, and MPs. They're, most of them are absolutely out to lunch on this issue because what's the talking point you see time and time again when you listen to the British or the U.S. or the, the European media? We're concerned about the buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. What they, they fail to ever mention is that Russia borders Ukraine. So they're they're well within their rights to build up their troops or run drills anywhere uh, in their own territory. If, if, if the U.S. would restrict its drills to U.S. territory, yeah. I'm sure the world would be less tense. Uh, but obviously, there's people in Washington that would disagree with me on that because they'd say that the U.S. is running drills all over the world, including along Russia's border, along with NATO, and that makes the world feel safer. So it depends who you believe uh, in, in that story. But they've twisted this fact and making Russia sound like it's aggressive uh, because it's concerned about NATO pressed right up and encircling Russia from the, Bal from the Baltic states, mm. right around Eastern Europe, and now Georgia, and now the underbelly. Possibility Ukraine. And I mean, further. clearly clearly the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO is a red line as far as Russia is concerned. But uh, just very briefly, uh, what are your thoughts on Putin's comment that that even if they had sunk HMS Defender, that would not have started uh, a more serious conflict? Uh, I, th I think it would have been a, a, a crisis, but it would have probably forced some actual diplomacy, no. actual negotiations, because at the end of the day, uh, Russia's war gamed out this to to great detail. They know exactly how it's going to play out. I'm sure NATO has done the same. 
So all of the drills, all of the rhetoric, all of the talking, all of the posturing really doesn't amount to much mm. when you come down to it. Both sides do not want anything near a shooting war. It's not in Russia's interest, certainly not in Ukraine's interest, and it's definitely not in any European country's interest, except maybe those countries that are just far away enough that they won't be directly affected by and have it. a powerful military industrial uh, base. Yeah, and and who can profit heavily off the crisis. I'm not going to go into details, but you know who we're talking about exactly. there. Yeah. So, Yes, okay. Well, look, we're going to end with this and just a quick uh, comment about the announcement that Nissan is uh, going to build a new generation of all electric vehicles in Sunderland alongside a new gigafactory uh, from uh, Envision EAS, uh, AESC. Uh, it's a major vote of confidence in the UK, apparently, and our highly skilled workers in the Northeast. Who said that? Well, Boris Johnson on Twitter. Um, so what has Nissan announced? Well, they, it's a £1 billion uh, EV electric vehicle hub, uh, the world's first EV manufacturing ecosystem. What are they talking about there? They're talking about 100,000 Nissan uh, electric vehicles a year. Now, the latest figures that I have in terms of uh, car assembly in the UK are from 2019, when 1.3 million cars were assembled in this country. Um, now, we know that the narrative in the race to zero uh, is that uh, we replace our fossil fuel uh, car fleet with electric vehicles uh, as quickly as possible. 2040, I think, is when, if I'm right, is when the uh, uh, they're going to stop selling uh, petrol-driven cars, uh, and they're going to uh, only be able to get electric vehicles after that. And my question is, how could we possibly be replacing uh, the car fleet if we're only going to be building 100,000 uh, electric vehicles a year? But I just want to remind everybody, we've mentioned this a couple of times, this report from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. This is a an organization which uh, uh, is very much on the global warming side of the argument. Skeptic side. No, they're not. They're okay. absolutely not on the skeptic side. They I'm are. Sure? Absolutely. So they are electrifying the UK and the want of engineering. This report is about the state of the electrification of this country and whether it's actually possible to meet the targets or not. Um, and so uh, electrifying the UK, they made the point that uh, the equivalent energy stored in a conventional car uh, filled with approximately 10 and a half gallons of gasoline, an EV needs a battery the weight of at least half a ton. Uh, and the production of those batteries is extremely energy intensive, includes mining, processing, huge amounts of copper, aluminium, and lithium. Um, and so they're making the point, they made the point in this report that the conversion of the UK car fleet would require 200% of the annual global production of cobalt, 75% uh, of the annual global production of lithium carbonate, 50%, uh, more than 50% of the annual global production of copper uh, and uh, around 100% of the annual global production of some rare earths, including uh, neod neodymium. So um, they're really making the point here that uh, this idea of replacing what we've got uh, is ridiculous because the raw materials aren't there to do it. And aside from that, the electricity generating capacity isn't there to do it. And aside from that, the charging points aren't there to do it. Uh, and if you think of the amount of time that it takes to charge uh, an EV at the moment, and also the limited range of EVs still at this point, what do you have to do to the uh, the, the motorway network to actually provide uh, the charging capacity uh, for cars that are traveling? Uh, and therefore, uh, it may be, from a jobs point of view, uh, a, a good thing for uh, this investment in the north uh, for Nissan, 
but um, from uh, 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 the ability to travel from the point of view of us and our, our personal liberty and our ability to travel in our own vehicles, this is going to have a chilling effect because it is not going to be possible to replace um, the uh, fossil fuel based uh, cars we have with EVs. And therefore, well, I don't think we're going to be traveling very much in the not too distant future. I mean, that's all well and good, all those facts, Mike, all those facts. But Central Party has decreed, Chairman Boris has said, no more petrol cars and we're going all electric by 2030 or whatever. So are you saying that Central Party, you're saying the chairman is wrong? Oh, I'm saying he's right. I'm saying what he's not telling us at the moment is that we are not going to be entitled to own a car. That's, that's what it's going to boil down to because there aren't going to be enough cars to go around. So it's only going to be, it's going to be very much the Soviet model. It's going to be the, the, the chairman, uh, the Politburo and his special friends get the nice black cars with the, cars. With the big batteries. SUVs. In them. Yes. Yeah. And the rest uh, don't get anything. Flying cars, maybe. Even. Perhaps. Yeah. But not with batteries, because the, they're going to be too heavy. So where do the plebs ride again? On, on trains. On the trains. Yes. And the buses, right? Yes. The electric buses. If, if you're lucky. Yeah. Yes. And cycling. Yes, that's true. Cycling. Cycling. Yes. So you can get to London. Might take you two days. It's got to be just as quick as an EV. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yes. Probably. Mm. Yeah. Good but point. anyway, on that point, we'll have to leave it for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you to Joe Boyd for joining us as well. Uh, we will be back at the same time as usual, 1 p.m. on Monday. Have a great weekend, and we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.